0: Good morning. It's 8.30 on Thursday, January 23rd. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, the House managers continue presentation of their case against President Donald Trump. We break down the Senate impeachment trial. Then, retired military leaders emphasize the importance of federal nutrition programs and the connection between child nutrition and national security. Plus, in our book club, Race Against Time. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. The impeachment trial continues in the Senate today as House managers resume the presentation of their case against President Donald Trump. The Senate will consider two articles of impeachment charged to the president by the House of Representatives, abuse of power and obstruction of Congress. Matt Steffi is a professor of law at the Mississippi College School of Law. He talks with us about the Senate's role as arbiters of justice.
1: The Senate is the sole judge of the rules of its chamber including the rules of impeachment now there have been rules of impeachment laid down since the late 1700s uh this is only the third impeachment trial of a president and they've jumped historical er ears there was a long time between one one and two and there was a significant you know kind of generational break between two and three so uh You know, it's essentially a tautology. The Senate sets the rules, and then the Senate follows the rules it set. And if it decides to deviate, it simply validates what it's done.
0: This is not anything like a trial you would find in any courtroom, that you would present the cases and then after that decide whether you want to hear any new evidence or call witnesses.
1: There's really no feature of this that looks like a trial, except there's a judge uh, sitting presiding over it. That's the most, and you've got lawyers involved. Other than that, calling it a trial connotates the uh, the, the, the kind of the wrong uh, frame of reference. But if this were a real trial, most of, if not all of the jurors would be excluded as already having prejudged the case. Moreover, we have some members of the jury have already announced they don't intend to be impartial notwithstanding that they take an oath to do impartial justice. Which was
0: a question of mine, the impartiality pledge, is it simply ceremonial?
1: Well, yeah, it is essentially ceremonial, although I do think even ceremonial or nominal adherence to norms is better than having no norms at all. Although... You know, from the beginning, from the beginning of the House inquiry, the result in the Senate is a foregone conclusion because it requires two out of three votes. And that is such a high standard for a body like the Senate. This plays out against the backdrop of the election in November, probably in a more relevant way than anything else.
0: What is the role of the Chief Justice Justice? Is it simply to preside over the proceedings, or does he have any power? I know he did some
1: reprimanding on the first night. He did, which was very interesting. That may have been the most interesting moment for me, watching and, uh, and observing parts of these proceedings. There is an interesting question, what would happen if... Chief Justice Roberts decided that his role was larger than what the Senators think it is that the 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 Senate rules provide that they have the ultimate say over whether to call witnesses and uh, and what the rules would be. but the Constitution assigns a role to the Chief Justice by name to preside over the proceedings and when you put a judge at the the head of the room. You invite the judge saying, "Hey, I know what my job is, and inherent in the judicial role are questions of law and evidence that I will decide for myself and that if Chief Justice Roberts signed a subpoena, it is hard to imagine there not being a lot of pressure for anybody to follow it wouldn't right? that be something though it's it would be it would be fascinating beyond words and a great uh 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 Moment in history. A moment in history and a great uh, kind of problem to unpack and study in constitutional law, and for all those reasons is extremely unlikely to happen. That is not Chief Justice Roberts' nature.
0: We've already been hearing many, many referrals to Bill Clinton's impeachment hearing, or impeachment trial, that this is mirroring that in many regards. Is that ground
1: zero for impeachment trials? It's the it is certainly the starting point where I would begin because it's the only other impeachment of a president in our lifetimes. It mirrors it more now that the Senate has decided to enter the House's evidence into the record in the Senate. It doesn't mirror it because it allows the president to try to claim the right to have some of that excluded or excised out a right that President Clinton did not have. There were witnesses, not a lot, but key witnesses in the uh, Clinton impeachment. Uh, I will be very surprised if we see any witnesses in this trial. The question, right, is whether there's any political dissonance for members of the Republican majority between arguing on the one hand over and over again. The president did nothing wrong. He's completely innocent. The House uh, didn't uh, gather all the information it should. And then, on the other hand, saying, but we want to gather absolutely no more information, whatever, or hear any other witnesses. And I understand the argument they're making that we shouldn't do the House's job, that the whole thing on its face doesn't even allege impeachable acts. But I think for most for, – for some folks, right, there's going to be some dissonance between I'm completely innocent and they overlooked uh, key witnesses and evidence and then saying, but we're not going to hear from any new witnesses or evidence whatsoever here.
0: Press access has been severely limited. Why? Why would that be the case? Why doesn't the American public deserve to see this impeachment trial?
1: Well, many of us do think the American public does deserve to see the impeachment trial, and we are seeing it like watching from from a distance on a single camera, like on C-SPAN, although even the C-SPAN cameras aren't there. Uh, Because this is fundamentally a political process. It is a political process that those in charge, in this case Mitch McConnell I thinks, is better if it is as quiet and fast and ignored as possible. Uh, so I think the more it's on the news, the more focus there is on it, the calculation goes that the uh, the worse it is for the President and for uh, the uh, Republican Senators who are serving as jurors uh, if they thought that this played to their political benefit, I think there would be greater media coverage on it. I don't think there's a – and again, I think that's also a little dissonant, saying there is nothing wrong here, but let's get this over as quickly and quietly as possible. And final thoughts about the constitutionality of all of this. Well, it is – we have assigned to the House house, this oversight authority to bring – articles of impeachment if they believe there are high crimes and misdemeanors i think there's there, there's a there's really three layers of questions what do we think happened you know what do we think the president did do we think that's the, that's that's one layer the second layer is it, uh, do we think what he did was wrong and then there's the third layer that if we think it's wrong do we think it's impeachable and that may be the hardest question of all if in fact the impeachment runs through with no witnesses and an easy victory for the president you, you know what you feed thrives and, and the next president would be emboldened to think that they there will be political benefits in not cooperating with the house not cooperating with their oversight and acting as uh, as though they don't have any kind of, there's really no room for congressional oversight.
0: Matt Steffi is a professor of law at the Mississippi College School of Law. Thank you, Matt.
1: My pleasure, Karen.
0: Mississippi Republican Senator Cindy Hyde-Smith released a statement on her campaign Twitter account on Wednesday stating, I stand with President Trump. When reached her comment asking how the senator explains openly standing with the subject of an impeachment trial upon which she is supposed to render impartial justice, her campaign stated she has an official job to do that is separate from her campaign. NPR special coverage of the Senate impeachment trial begins at 12 noon. Coming up, retired military leaders emphasize the importance of federal nutrition programs and the connection between child nutrition and national security. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPV Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. A panel of officials from across the state are discussing ways to make sure young Mississippians are living healthy lifestyles. Mission Readiness is a national effort by retired generals and nutritional experts to work to make a healthy generation that is ready and able to serve in the U.S. military. Retired Major General Leon Collins is a former adjutant general of the Mississippi National Guard. He tells MPB's Kobe Vance having a larger pool of potential recruits is important for national security.
3: Well, with, with, with the unrest around the globe today, you never know when the next conflict is going to happen and when Mississippians might be called upon to, to come and answer the call. So f- for that, we need to make sure that we have the largest group of individuals that are ready in, in the time in, in case that the country calls. That's a problem in Mississippi because, you know, well over 70 percent of the uh, uh, young men and women 17 to 24 years old are ineligible to join uh, any of our military services either because of obesity, either because of a lack of academic preparation, or because they've been in trouble with the law for some reason. What we have to do is start at the early age uh, to to get them uh, acclimated to to doing the right things, eating properly, staying fit, and making sure that they don't do anything that gets them in trouble to where they have a criminal record, because that increases the pool that we can draw from in the event we do have a conflict that we have to respond to.
4: What would these programs do to to alleviate those percentages.
3: Well, to fix the problems, you have to start early. And it, 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 it starts in, in early childhood education to, to, to set the pattern because that's when uh, the brain is developed the most, and that's why you have to start with, with, the, with, the, uh, with, the, with the daycares, the Head Start programs, that type of thing to get, get uh, kids on the right track. You know, it, 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 it's, uh, it's common knowledge that you can't eat an apple until someone plants a tree. So that's why you have to start with, at a young age so where when they get to be 17 to 24 years old, they're prepared.
4: This is a program to start to educate on he- healthy eating habits then?
3: It, it is. It's, it's a program to educate. It's, it's, it's to get the, the, the children uh, used to healthy eating habits, but also to educate the adults on how to prepare proper uh, meals where they can get fresh fruit, fresh vegetables, and, 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 and lean protein that, that helps them develop to where they're, they're not undernourished and they're not obese.
4: Going forward, if you all were able to get these numbers down, what would that mean for Mississippi as well as the nation uh, and national security?
3: Well, for national security, it means a lot because, like I said, we have a larger pool to draw from. But, but for Mississippi as a whole, it increases the number of, of, of young men and women who can stay in this state, be productive citizens, and help move us from being 48, 49, and 50 in so many categories that we are in today.
4: What are some of the hurdles that you all see going forward? What things do you expect to, uh, to try to get over in the next few years?
3: Well, obviously funding is always uh, an issue. We have to come up with a way to where those, those programs can be funded to where we can actually uh, make sure that kids, uh, one, have, uh, have adequate school lunches, they have adequate, lunches, uh, adequate meals after school, and then have adequate meals during the summer when school is out. Uh, that, that's, it's always a money thing.
0: Retired Major General Leon Collins is a former adjutant general of the Mississippi National Guard. Officials say part of the battle is making sure Mississippians have access to healthy and affordable food. The other part is making sure families know how to cook and prepare that food into meals. Sylvia Bird of the Mississippi State Extension Service tells our Kobe Vance low-resource families share the same nutrition concerns as affluent families.
5: A recent study showed that um, families with limited resources are just as concerned about their children's health as more, as affluent parents are. The difference comes when a child wants an unhealthy snack or unhealthy food, they're more likely to say yes than an affluent parent, and what drives that is self-worth. So I wanted to tie that in that it's a parenting Factor when we look at obesity, it's also tied into their biological aspect and it's tied into the environment and the social context that we live in. When we look, Mississippi is very rural and we have a lot of food access issues. And there's two things that are happening right now uh, that may help address food access to healthy foods in mississippi one of those being there's a study that's looking at using snap benefits ebt uh, online shopping and alabama's a pilot uh, study in that that, or pilot state in that study uh, which would allow families to order online another uh, could be ready to um prepare box, boxes of food that arrive and at the home where the family could prepare the food. So it still creates the need for the family still needs to know how to prepare those foods. And the Extension Service is working uh, to deliver food preparation skills and to teach those to um, our consumers.
4: And then I know a lot of these services actually provide like step-by-step instructions yes. on dealing with that. Do you think that would help to educate people in their own homes on how to keep continuing to cook healthy?
5: I think that there's two factors that influence uh, families, and that are that's time. So I think if we can teach families that quick, easy recipes that are tasty, that they are more likely to prepare those. So, yes, I think step-by-step instructions. Uh, we have a lot of re- uh, recipes on our uh, Happy Healthy website that are kid-friendly, kid-tested, and are less than five or six ingredients that are quick and easy, one pot, one dish, meals to prepare.
4: And uh, do you think? Do you see this as being a good way to, um, to f- combat uh, food deserts in the state?
5: I think that there are potentials. Uh, We have uh, the need to have more fresh fruits and vegetables available, so access is a challenge for fresh fruits and vegetables. I do think that um, ready-to-prepare meals and or uh, shopping online could help to address that.
0: Sylvia Byrd is professor and program director for the Mississippi State University Extension Center. Coming up in our book club, investigative reporter Jerry Mitchell on his book Race Against Time. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This is MPB
2: Think Radio. Mississippi is our mission.
5: Walker, the lady auto mechanic, host of Auto Correct. If you're enjoying this podcast, try my podcast, Auto Correct. We help steer you in the right direction with your car problems. Find me on any podcast platform or at autocorrect.mpbonline.org.
0: This is Mississippi Edition. I'm Karen Brown. Decades ago, reporter Jerry Mitchell watched a screening of the film Mississippi Burning. It was the fictionalized version of the true story of three civil rights workers who were killed by Klansmen in Neshoba County during the civil rights movement. When Mitchell learned that the state of Mississippi refused to prosecute any suspects, he was on the case, a case now very, very cold. Other cold cases followed, the assassination of Medgar Evers, the church bombing in Birmingham, Alabama, that killed four little girls, and the firebombing of Vernon Dahmer's home that resulted in his death. Jerry Mitchell chronicles his investigations into these four cold cases in his new book, Race Against Time. In our conversation with him, he begins by telling us how he investigates a cold case.
2: The, the way you approach it is basically go and find every scrap of paper and document you can possibly find on the case. In that case, the FBI actually did a pretty thorough investigation of the case. I think the, the case file is like, I think, close to 40,000 pages.
0: Were you the catalyst for this case being reopened, this cold case?
2: I'll let the reader judge that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm not asking you to brag on yourself. I'm just wondering.
2: (laughs) Well, I I got interested in it. I, I mean, I got interested in that case, and that kind of led me. Nothing really happened with that case at that moment. Instead of kind of interestingly led me to the Mega Rivers case. Well, it led me to the Sovereignty Commission which then in turn led me to Medgar Evers case. The, the Mississippi Sovereignty Commission, I don't know if you're like me, but if someone tells me I can't have something, I want to like it like a million times worse. So Mississippi had something called the Mississippi Sovereignty Commission. It was a state segregationist spy agency. And they had more than 132,000 pages of documents, spy records and everything. And the Mississippi legislature voted in 1977 to get rid of the agency, but seal all those records for 50 years. I wasn't looking at this until '89, twelve years later. But the court case was still going on, and so when I found out about that, I thought God, there's got to be something in there, or they wouldn't be sealing the records for 50 years. So I began to develop sources, and they began to leak me the files, and those showed at the same time the state of Mississippi was prosecuting Byron Dealbuck with this other arm of the state, the Sovereignty Commission, was secretly assisting the defense trying to get back with acquitted, and nobody knew that, and so. That story ran October the 1st, 1989. Merle Evers asked for the case to be re-prosecuted. And then by the end of that month, the DA's office said they'd look at the case.
0: You also, in this book, cover the murder of Vernon Dahmer and the church bombing in Birmingham that killed those four girls. Yeah, awful. That one in particular stands out, I think, to the American public that everyone knows about that case. Vernon Dahmer, maybe not.
2: Well, Vernon Damer was a farmer, a businessman, an entrepreneur. He had his own little grocery store. And he believed that if African-Americans got voting rights, that things would begin to change in America. He was right. He fought for that. He got involved in the NAACP right after World War II. Anyway, the Klan didn't like his involvement in voting rights. Attacked him and his family in the Middle of the night. They basically set their house on fire, began firing guns into the house. Vernon Damer woke up, grabbed his shotgun, ran to the front of the house, began firing back the Klansmen, so his family could escape safely out a back window. Unfortunately, the flames of the fire seared his lungs, and he died later that day. And a few weeks later, in the mail, arrived his voter registration card.
0: Of the four cases that you cover in this book, were there prosecutions in all of them?
2: Yes, Yes, there were.
0: Were there convictions in all of them?
2: Yes, there were.
0: Because you were involved in these cases over a pretty long period of time, when did you sure. start writing this book?
2: I actually started writing it at the time. People ask me how long I've been writing this book. I go, oh, it's actually 30 years, I guess.
0: With these cold cases, the civil rights cold cases, mm-hmm. you got people to talk to you. Oh, yeah. People that knew things. People actually invited you into their homes.
2: I know. It's hard how, to believe. How do you
0: explain that?
2: I don't know. I look really white. <laughs> I'm like albino. I actually want to hear what they have to say. I am I want to know them fully. And that's the other thing. I hope all the characters come across three-dimensionally. So. Let me
0: ask you this, then. Why did they want to tell you what they knew?
2: It's a secret that many journalists know. Everybody wants to tell their story. Everybody wants to tell their story. I think especially when people get toward the ends of their lives. They have this deep desire to tell
0: what do you want people to most gain from reading this book
2: hopefully it's a gripping or chilling or whatever you know someone said uh, read that people kind of get caught up in the story and enjoy the story it's a detective story it's a true crime story it's people who enjoy those kind of books I think will enjoy it And, and again it being true and then on top of that I think it tells the story of the courage of people like Meg Revers Vernon Dahmer, the students who came down were part of Freedom Summer. It tells the story of incredible people that uh, I kind of met on this journey. It tells the story of, of really kind of the, the rise of white supremacy and in, in the history of this nation. Hopefully, all those things come through. I, I,
0: Race Against Time, a Reporter Reopens the Unsolved Murder Cases of the Civil Rights Era, written by Jerry Mitchell. Jerry, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you. Appreciate it, Karen. And Jerry Mitchell will be at Lemuria Books in Jackson, Square Books in Oxford, and Turnrow Books in Greenwood in early February. Check with those stores for dates and times. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio.